offering. We're going to read Psalm 15. So if you want to stand as we honor the Lord, as we read Psalm 15, 1 through 5. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on others, who, dis who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, all right. Before we get into our message this morning, I just wanted to take one second and uh, say that I like you <laughs> to, to affirm you as people, right? Uh, but also, sorry, I don't know why that came out of my mouth. It's just the way it went. I do like you, though. Uh, but I also wanted to say uh, just quickly uh, today that this week, uh, is a big week. I'm sure a lot of you have busy schedules, right? My kids are back in school. There's like three sports. I'm getting random texts from coaches every other day, it feels like, that we're going to have this soccer practice or that soccer practice and this meeting or that meeting. But on Wednesday of this week, we have our partnership with Cadence Closet, our end, oh, shoot, the name is escaping me, uh, end of summer fest. Farewell to summer fest. There we go. Nailed it. Uh, and so many of you uh, were contacted this week, and many of you have signed up. And I just want to take a second and want to publicly thank Jen. You don't have to stand up. You can sit right where you are. But thank Jen for all her work. Uh, she's been working really hard to make this event go. I ran into her at Fairway. I was giving, getting avocados, and she was getting assorted foods for her family. And she told me about all the books she was buying for, uh, for this event on Wednesday night. And uh, we're really excited. So. Uh, if you are one of the people that hasn't heard yet, you can sign up today uh, in the lobby or, you know, just show up and we'll put you to work for sure. We're excited about Wednesday. Uh, yeah, I know, Jen doesn't like that, but hey, this is the way it works. This is the way it works. Some people just don't, some people just don't sign up and I'm one of them. So anyways, I just assume my presence is expected, right? So we're really looking forward uh, to that event on Wednesday night and to serve together. You know, this is one of those great events. There's this thing that happens in the church when we actually serve together, right? When we don't just like come and, you know, we do a different thing. We get out of our usual routine and we actually serve together. When you put different people in a different environment doing different things together, all of a sudden you learn things about people that you never knew. And it's this, it's this powerful way of uh, coming together as a community as well as serving our community. All right? All right. So, Today, we're looking at Psalm 15. Now, biblical scholars are basically in agreement that Psalm 15 functioned for the people of Israel as what, what is often referred to as a psalm of entrance. A psalm of entrance. A psalm of entrance was like a psalm that the people sung as they entered into the temple to worship God. Now, we, uh, this makes sense when you hear it because when you look at verse 1, it, make, it makes total sense. What is, what's the first thing the, the psalmist is talking about in verse 1 of Psalm 15? Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live 
on your holy mountain. That's an obvious reference to the temple, to Mount Zion, to the place where God's spirit rested, to the place that the people of Israel went to worship God and to make sacrifices at the temple. And so the psalmist is thinking about as they're going up to the temple, to the mountain, to, to the place where God is worshipped, to the place where sacrifice is made, uh, thinking about God and thinking about what their, this worshiper's responsibility is to God. Now imagine with me that you were one of these pilgrims, one of these worshipers, and you're headed up to the to the tabernacle or to the tent of meeting or to the temple after it had been built on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And you're, you're entering this temple, and as you go, you're singing this song or you're reciting this prayer to yourself. Now, it sounds funny to us that they had worship songs or prayers that they sang or worshiped as they were entering the temple, but uh, historically, Christians did this as well. I don't know if you know. Uh, for the longest time, Christian, it was expected that before Christians came to church on a Sunday that they, that they devoted their heart to God on Saturday night in kind of a, in a posture of preparation. It's something that's gone a little bit out the window now. Now we iron our shirts, right, in preparation for Sunday. But guess what? You could say a prayer while you're ironing your shirt. It's actually a really good time to pray that you don't burn your shirt, uh, if you're me. Um, but historically... Uh, this was what was happening. As the pilgrims were entering the temple, they sang one of these psalms of entrance. Now, another psalm of entrance is, I believe, Psalm uh, 34 uh, is, another one, uh, is another example of this. But as they're entering the temple, as they're going into the place of worship, as they're going to do their sacrifice, they are reminding both themselves and maybe those who are around them about the God that they were going to worship. And Psalm 15 is a meditation by the psalmist that is interesting because this psalmist is asking this question as he enters into the temple. The question he is asking is what type of person is God after? What type of person is God after? Or a, a better way of putting that might be this. Who can live on the mountain? Who has the traits of heart and mind or character that would allow them to stand or to live in God's presence? What type of person do you have to be to be able to stand in God's presence? And Psalm 15 is the answer to the question on the psalmist's heart about what type of person you would need to be in order to live in God's presence, to stand in God's presence. So, uh, if my heart, my character, were to be 100% in line with the character and nature of God, I would look like the, the, the person that the psalmist describes in Psalm 15. You see, the psalmist tells us exactly what a holy person would look like. And imagine if you were a spiritual pilgrim, you were a Jewish person going up to literally offer sacrifices for the sins that you know quite well you had recently committed as you recite this psalm. Chances are the sin that was on your heart or mind as you were going to the temple to worship is listed here, right? You see the place in which you fall short. It could have been a powerful reminder and even a motivator for this worshiper as they enter the temple. It might propel them into the house of God to atone for their sins, to make an offering of repentance. 
to try to, to right themselves. You see, this psalm, in a way, reveals the depth of our own brokenness and the, own, and the brokenness of the singer of the psalm, of the psalmists themselves. And the depth of sin and the distance we have in our lives from the holiness of God. And so what I want to do briefly this morning, just in the middle part of our message today, is to look at this list that he lays out here and see what standards of holiness God holds out for the type of person who could dwell in God's personal presence. And then we'll draw a couple of observations from this. So the psalmist lists this power, gives us this powerful list of character traits or um, orientations of heart that make it possible for somebody to stand in the presence of God. And the first standard of holiness that he, he lists in verse 2 is a blameless walk. A blameless walk. This is what it says in verse 2. The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. So right there at the very beginning, the key, blamelessness. A person uh, has any, any of us blameless in the room, right? Automatically, the psalmist just excludes 100% of the people that he's writing to, right? Everybody's disqualified, so let's head on to round two, right? What does the psalmist say in verse three, the second thing? That, that the second uh, standard for holiness, for being a person who can stand in the presence of God, is that a person does not speak with slurs or slander their neighbor. Here's what we read. Who's, uh, he whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and casts no slur on another. This is slightly more manageable, right, than the first one. The standard is not bla uh, blamelessness, but it's still quite difficult, isn't it? Have any of you tried to not slander or slur against somebody? God's expectation for a person who would live in his presence is a tongue that does not slander, that does not speak a slur towards another. You see, uh, God's intention and his desire is that our mouths would always only speak words that dignify that res and respect our neighbor, that dignify and respect our neighbor. And biblically, just so you know, your neighbor is everyone, right? Your literal neighbor might be hard enough, right? <laughs> but when everyone's your neighbor, it becomes even more difficult, doesn't it? So we are not to speak a devaluing or demeaning word about anyone. And we all know how hard this one is, right? But basically, the standard here is that God would have our words about people align with his view of people, right? God does not speak slanderous or devaluing words over anybody. And so the standard for one who would be like him or able to dwell in his presence is that we would do the same. We would not slander. These are strange words, right? Sl slander in our, in, our, in our day and age is kind of a legal term has a legal definition, but, uh, but we all know what that looks like, right? We all know what that feels like as well. So not to, not to speak a word of slander or a word of slur about or towards anybody. So that's number two. The third standard that's held out for us in this psalm is in verse four. It is to be righteous, wise, honest, and true, basically. 
here's what verse 4 says. Who despises a vile, uh, he who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Anybody ever changed your mind before? <laughs> Man alive. Now, now, there's one tension here in this, in this psalm that I think is important to draw out. Uh, so the psalmist gets done in verse 3 just saying, don't slander or slur against anybody, right? In verse 3. But in the, verse 4, what does he command? Despise vile people, right? Do you, ever, do you notice the tension there? Uh, but then he says, but, but honor those who fear the Lord. So despise the vile person, but honor those who fear the Lord. Now, despising a vile person may seem to be at odds with what was said above. And we, you'll often run into this in the Bible, right? You'll, you'll run into competing ideas, and you have to think not just in terms of what it, what's on the page, but what the whole story of Scripture is communicating to us about the character and nature of God. The Bible is a unified whole, and we need to read every individual line within the context of the whole line. This is a key for being a good Bible reader. It's just that in this psalm, we have to read uh, the beginning of verse 4 in tension with verse 3 as well. So what is the psalmist saying here? In one breath, he says, do not slander or speak ill of your neighbor, but in the other, uh, but in the next verse, he's saying, despise the vile person. But what you have to remember when you read the Bible, and specifically when you read a lot of passages in the Old Testament, and the Psalms especially, is that this is poetic language. And poetic language and imagery is intentionally heightened, you know this, in order to increase the rhetorical power or effect or force of something. So to despise the vile, pers the vile person must mean to despise, must not mean to despise them in the, in the like, in the way we understand despise, but it can't mean to literally despise or devalue somebody because the verse before just said, don't devalue them, right? What, what, what's held in tension here is, I think, really, really important. You see, despise the vile person clearly means that the righteous person does not give special honor to those who do wrong precisely because of the wrong they do. This is about honor, not necessarily about uh, actually hating versus slurring or slandering, right? So here's an example for you. We see this all the time. People who are valorized not for the good they do, but for the evil they do. And, and those who do good are often ignored. And you see this in culture all the time. Think about, for instance, celebrity culture in America, all right? The people who are valorized are the beautiful people, right? The uber wealthy, those who exemplify pride, arrogance, and vanity, right? And we elevate those things, and we say those are the good things, right? They're, those are valorized. Yet we, uh, yet we don't exalt the humble, right? Yet we don't exalt the humble. I know of pastors working tirelessly in L.A. With, home, with, the home, with homeless populations there or helping single mothers and broken families. But those people never make the cover of People magazine for some reason, right? I don't know why. I don't know why. I think that is why, what, I think there's something like that is what the psalmist is saying here. Uh, he's, 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 uh, he's saying something about the importance 
of not valorizing that which is not good. And we live in a culture where uh, that which is vile gets valorized all the time, all the time. And so we need to be cognizant of that and to realize that we live in a culture where that's the case. And, and as a rebuttal to the valorization of things which are not good, what we are called to do is to give honor to those to whom honor is due, right? To call attention and even shine a spotlight on those people and things who are actually doing the good in the world and not just the things that um, we point to as, uh, that culture points to as important or, or elevates that are actually not good at all, that are actually things like prideful and envious and all of that and, the lo and love money and stuff like that. And so we, need to be so we need to be cognizant of that. But then he goes on in verse 4, doesn't he? If you have your Bibles, you can see this. He says, but honor those who fear the Lord, which is something we need to do. But then he says, keep an oath, even when it hurts. Keep an oath, even when it hurts. Which happens, right? There are, there are times in your life where you've taken an oath, you've made a promise. And it hurts to keep that oath or to make that promise. Or to keep that promise and that oath. It hurts. But yet there's something about being truthful in the way you conduct yourself and by keeping your promises that uh, God wants to see. And then he says at the end, and do not change your mind. I change my mind about everything all of the time. I hope it doesn't, that doesn't have to do with paint colors in your house. All right? So let's keep it moving. The, in verse 4, uh, another standard of, of uh, holiness that's laid out for us for the person who is going to stand in the presence of God is to live a life of justice and serves the poor. Somebody who can stand in God's presence is one who uh, lives a life of justice and serves the poor. This is what verse 5 says. Who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept the bribe, a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken, right? The person who can dwell in God's presence, can live on his holy mountain, must also care deeply for the poor, taking active steps to help them and to never take advantage of the innocent, all right? And this is convicting as well. I don't know about you, but I don't have the concern for the poor that God has. When I read the scriptures, I realize that quite quickly, that my concern for the poor doesn't raise to the level of God's. But there's this little glimmer of hope, right, in verse 5, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. When I read that, the first thing that comes to mind is, I have no idea what it means to not accept a bribe against the innocent, so clearly I've never done it, right? But then something happens, and I check the tag on my shirt, and I realize that this nice, cheap H&M shirt that I'm wearing right now was made by a poor person in Indonesia or China who has not been fairly compensated for their labor. Or I realize that some of the rare earth metals that are mined to make this little iPhone go were, uh, were produced by, were mined using child labor, right? In some other country. And I realize that many of the nice things that I have are only possible because they are a bribe against the innocent in some way, shape, or form. And at this point, this is the point where a kind of despondence sets in, doesn't it? 
there is no way I'm going to be able to live on God's holy mountain, is there? There's no way I'm going to be able to stand in his presence. There's no chance of it at all. And this psalm of entrance becomes a real bummer, right? But here's where the good news starts, I think. For the Israelite, this was a psalm of entrance, a song meant to remind them of God's holiness and their sin and quite possibly of their need for sacrifice, the sacrifice that they were about to offer in the temple. And you see, we see in this psalm an answer to the question that the psalmist is asking. Who can stand on God, in God's presence and who can live on his holy mountain? And the answer is no one. No one is holy and blameless and righteous and truthful and just. But you ask again, Nick, where's the good news, right? Where's the good news this morning? The good news is that while this psalm was a psalm of entrance for the Israelites, Christians have always read Psalm 15 as a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points to Jesus. You see, because the main issue with this psalm is that if it is only meant to be a kind of example or an inspiration for us, there is no way any of us will ever make it into God's presence, is there? Our, our lives will never match the standard of holiness that, that God exemplifies or desires for each and every one of us. I tried earlier to talk through the kind of nebulous nature of the world we live in and the ways in which our lives are intertwined with sins that we're not even aware of. We've committed sins against people that we don't, we're, we don't even know we committed. This is why Christians, when we confess our sins historically, we confess the sins that we are aware of and the ones that we are not, right? Because it, it, it points to the reality that there is all manner of things that we do in this life that don't meet the standard of God. There are all manner of systems and structures in this world that we participate in that, are, that don't live up to the standard of our God. And yet there is a reason, there is a reason that when Christians come to this passage, this psalm, Psalm 15, we say that it's not simply a psalm of entrance. It's not simply a psalm of the standard that we have to meet in a, some religious system. This psalm is meant to be an example to us because we're supposed to see that Jesus is the righteous person who can dwell in God's tent, who can, shed up, who can set up shop in God's presence. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these requirements. He's the fulfillment of verse 2. He's the fulfillment of verse 2. You see, Jesus uh, meets the requirement of being blameless. This is what we read in 1 John 3, 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Jesus is blameless. Jesus fulfilled verse 3 in his instruction that the righteous person does not speak a word of slander or slur against their neighbor. Here's an instruct. Uh, this is a, a, another prophetic passage from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. You see, when Jesus stood before Pilate, 
when he was on the cross. He did not speak a word of slander or defilement against the people who were crucifying him. He spoke a word of blessing, right? Over the very people who were driving the nails into his hands. And yet, we get mad at the person at Starbucks who doesn't move fast enough. Right? We get, per we get mad at the Verizon employee, right? We get mad at the restaurant who doesn't do what we want them to do. And yet, and yet, we have this example in Jesus. You see, Jesus fulfilled the requirement of verse 4 of not taking, uh, not taking from the poor or borrowing against the innocent. He is righteous, wise, honest, and true. This is what we read in Revelation 21.5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The, word Je the words Jesus speaks are trustworthy and true. And Jesus lived a life of justice and service to the poor. Here's what we read in Luke 14, uh, 12 through, through 14. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see, Jesus lived justice. He lived social justice. He lived religious justice. He lived economic justice. He advocated for those who could not advocate for themselves. Jesus casting the money changers out of the temple was an act of justice for foreigners and the poor. His blessings and his healings were reserved almost exclusively for those who were systematically oppressed and marginalized by the power structures of his day. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 15. If the band could come up, that'd be awesome. And the truth of this passage, the truth of Psalm 15, is not that it is meant to heap condemnation on, on our heads, but to bring us great joy and hope and consolation because we can't do it. But Jesus can. This very idea led the Apostle Paul to say this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. He says this, Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world uh, and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one boast, uh, no, no one boast who boast, Sorry, geez, I really screwed that one up. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We do not have in and of ourselves access to any of the righteousness that is required to enter the temple or to tie our shoes in the morning. And yet, we are given.
given this gift in the person of Jesus. Our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, and our wisdom. You see, this is the gospel. Psalm 15 is the gospel in a nutshell. It's that you and I are broken. We can't meet the standard of God in any way, shape, or form. And yet Jesus is for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And when he looks at us, despite how broken and devastatingly messed up as we are, he doesn't speak a slanderous word or a defiling word. He speaks a word of grace made possible by his shed blood and broken body. See, this is why we come to the table of communion, as we're going to do today. To remember, to remind ourselves of this fact. Jesus with your life. 